for emphasis. Remember, the Apostle Paul was in prison when he wrote this. This is one of the many times that the Apostle Paul was in prison. And he didn't know at this point whether he was going to be released or not, but, but he was. We know from history that, and from the, the other books of the Bible, it wasn't until later on that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned again, and only then was he killed. So he wrote this letter in, while he was in chains. It's interesting that none of the major English translations accurately, accurately reflect what the Greek says. He, he's actually said, he actually says, a prisoner in the Lord. There's a difference. Yes, he is a prisoner for the Lord, but in this instance he's saying, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. Now, what does it mean that, that Paul is a prisoner in the Lord? He's a prisoner for the Lord because he is, is in prison for his gospel ministry. What he's focusing on here is that wherever he is, he is in the Lord. He belongs to the Lord. He is an ambassador for the Lord. And here he is an ambassador in chains. He's going to say that in chapter 6, verse 20. But the chains don't change the fact that he is an ambassador. He is an ambassador wherever the Lord sends him. If only we saw that the, the same was true for us, that we are ambassadors for Christ wherever the Lord sends us. And, and there may come a time if the Lord tarries that some of us are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Repeatedly, the, the Apostle Paul suffered, bound with chains as a criminal, but he said, as we prayed earlier, but the word of God is not bound. 2 Timothy 2.9 But from Paul's position as a prisoner, he's, he's in a good spot to be able to tell us what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. Look, please, at the last half of verse 1. Where he is saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And really, this, that, that phrase there is, is really a subtitle for the rest of the book of Ephesians. He's going to go on and tell us in, this, in the, the second half, in chapters 4 to 6, how to walk. How to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, think just for a moment about how you once walked. Well, Paul describes that for us in Ephesians 2, 1-3. And this is all of us prior to our salvation. He describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins. He describes us as followers of Satan. And, as, and by nature the children of wrath. That's what we were. That is how we used to walk. All of us. Maybe for, for some of you, it's been a very long time since you walked like that. And praise God. But don't forget from whence you came. And don't forget that it is entirely by God's grace that, that you are any different than that. It is because of God's grace that you no longer walk that way. So now in light of that, in light of, of what you were, think about your calling. Paul describes that in, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. He, he says, but God... So think about everything that, that, that was, was true of you before. You were dead. You were a follower of Satan. You were, uh, by nature, the children of wrath. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is your calling. 
That is your calling. Or in, in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that the church would know the hope of their calling. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints. How could you possibly, how could I possibly, how could any of us possibly walk in a manner worthy of that calling? We can't. We can't do it. This is an unbelievably high command. None of us can do it. But in case you think that this is just a one-off, and Paul is just setting the standard really high for these Ephesian Christians, he says the same thing repeatedly. He says it in Philippians 1.27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in Colossians 1.10, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God. You are called by God's free grace, but your calling has a cost. There's a cost involved. You know, so many people, when they, they hear an evangelistic message, they're, they're not warned, they're not told to count the cost. They're, they're, they're told that you can have your best life now. But we really need to, in the course of our evangelism, tell people to count the cost. The Lord Jesus says that we should tell people to count the cost. This is, this is not an easy thing. This is an impossible thing. You will never measure up. I will never measure up. We will never live lives that are worthy of the gospel. But, by the grace of God that is in us, we strive to live a life like that. Mm -hmm. We aim for that. We, because we love God and because we are thankful for all that He has done for us, we say, I don't want to live like that anymore. I know what it's like to be dead in my trespasses and sins. I know what it's like to follow Satan. I know what it's like to be a child of wrath. And I don't want to live like that anymore because I'm thankful for all that you have done for me, Lord, in Christ Jesus. Are you thankful for what God has done for you in Christ? I hope so. I hope you are. But even thankfulness is not enough. Thankfulness, yes, it's, it's inspiring to say, I'm thankful for all that God has done for me, but I can never be thankful enough to, to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. You need strength to do that. You need supernatural strength to do that. And beloved, you have that. You have that strength in Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. You have divine power enabling you to walk in a way that is worthy of God. It's like Augustine said, or prayed, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Do you get that? Command what you will and give what you command. Augustine was, was acknowledging that he did not have the ability to be able to do what God was calling him to do. He knew from God's word what God was calling him to do, but he also knew from God's word that he couldn't do it unless God did it in him. So we strive. 
By the grace of God at work in our lives, we strive to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Yes, we will always fall short of that impossibly high standard. And for that, we cast ourselves again and again and again on the grace of God. We strive and we fail. But we keep striving, don't we? But again, I need to be so, so careful here to remind us of the first half of the book of Ephesians. Because if you take these commands, if you say, well, I've got to strive, I'm just, this is a, I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and, and live a life that is honoring to God, you will set yourself up for failure. It is going to lead to legalism, and it's going to lead to self-righteousness. Again, you cannot do it. But we, we remember from the first half of the book what God is doing in us. And so it's in that strength that, that Paul is saying we have. Like, like he says in, in Ephesians Rather, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's scary. If it wasn't for verse 13. For it is God who has at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So even just the desire to obey God is a gift of God's grace. Let alone the ability to be able to walk in any obedience. We need to be so careful not to make a break between the first half of Ephesians, between chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. And you'll see as we walk through these, these imperatives, these commands, again and again, for the, really for the remainder of the book, I'm going to continually ground it back in the first half. In Greek, there's, there's two different, well, there's several different moods, but the ones that we're concerned with here are the indicative mood, which really is simply, it's a, it's a statement of fact. Statement of reality. And so in the first half, it's, it's full of, of statements of reality. And then the second half is the imperative. These are the commands that God gives us based on those indicatives. So what does it look like then to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Well, again, this is the focus of the entire rest of the letter, but... but the Apostle Paul starts out with four in verse two, with, with four characteristics that, that really reflect what it would mean to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance in love. So as he, as he talks about these, these four things, where do you think the Apostle Paul has in mind of, of them being walked out? In the home? In the workplace? Well, he's going to come to those later. And yes, those, those characteristics do, do need to be there wherever we go, but his focus here is the church. He's saying that humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love need to be exhibited in the church. So then verses 2 and 3, how do we maintain that unity? It's, it's in these four things. These four virtues in verse 2 are, are, the, are for the purpose of maintaining unity. The unity that he's going to talk about in verse 3. So first of all, humility. This is the attitude of, of viewing others above yourself. Paul exhibited it in chapter 3 verse 8 when he described himself as the least of the saints. 
the Apostle Paul. And this is not false humility here. He is really saying he really believes that he is the least of the saints. I wonder, do you view yourself like that? Do you view others as being above you? Do you demonstrate humility? Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And I know that, that not just for, for humility, but in, in all of these, I, I was talking to Jane about it earlier, that I, I was facing great conviction or my failure to walk in, in any one of these things. One of the things about humility is that as soon as you think you have it, you've lost it. And, and really, when you think about the problems in the church, and, and even the, the problems that, that, that we have faced as a church, really a lack of humility is really at, at core. And, and I like to talk about my own lack of humility. We feel like we deserve better treatment. We, we feel like we deserve respect. It's pride. And pride destroys unity. The Apostle Paul looked at himself up in a, in a, in a humble way as an, as an example of, of humility with what he said, but, but who is the ultimate example of humility? That's right, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn for a moment to Ephesians, to, rather to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he goes on, Let each of you look not only upon his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, Lord himself, even for, for, for Jesus to, be, to take on human flesh, for God the Son to take on human flesh, even that in and of itself is, is a huge condescension. If Jesus were to, to come as a, as a king, as a, as a great king, ruler of all, he will come back that way, but when he came, he came as a servant, and as, as the, the lowest form of servant, as he humbled himself, even to the point of death. He Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of our humility. And again, how do you walk in a manner worthy of that? You can't. So again, we cast ourselves afresh on the mercy of Christ, thankful that he fulfilled all of these things for us. Gentleness, or more accurately, meekness, 
Meekness is a, is a term that is, is often misunderstood. It's, it's usually considered to be synonymous with weakness. But meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's, it's, it's really quite the opposite. Meekness is really controlled strength. It's con controlled strength. And the, the, the word first was used to describe a well-trained animal, like a, a well-trained horse that, that was powerful but had restrained power. It had disciplined power. And meekness is, is really closely connected with, with, sub, with submissiveness. Jesus Christ is, the, again, the ultimate example of meekness. He describes it in, in, uh, in Matthew 11, verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Again, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, meek and lowly. But our culture really exalts the opposite, doesn't it? Even sadly in, in, in our churches, quite often that the characteristic that it's the person that, that really puts themselves forwards and is really the, the take charge kind of person. That is the person who often rises to positions of authority in the church. But again, it is to be the opposite of this. It is, it is, yes, there is strength, but it is controlled strength. It is submissive to the will of God, and it is, it is submissive to brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Paul is going to be talking about in, in chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's going to talk then about what that is supposed to look like. Again, meekness is a vital component for unity. Commentator C.L. Mitten says, Meekness is the spirit of one who is so absorbed in seeking some worthy goal for the common good that he refuses to be deflected from by its slights, injuries, or insults that are directed at him personally or indeed by personal considerations of any kind. So that the person who is meek is is. The goal that they live for is not their own glory. It is for the glory of God in the church. And so they really just see themselves as, as tools to that end. So you really can't offend a person like that. Because they're not worried about themselves. They're more worried about the glory of God, whatever happens to them. Oh, that, that I would be a more meek person. Or patient. The third virtue here in verse 2. <coughs> this is not in the, the, the sense of, of patience that it talks about here. It's not really the sense of a, of a parent training a child. It, it's more the, the type of, of, res, of a response that is someone who is, is slow to avenge wrong, or, or they're not, a person is not going to retaliate when hurt by another person. It's the, the ability to be treated poorly by, poorly by somebody without losing your temper or without being irritated. Quite often in, in my own responses to being treated poorly, it's, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go Newton's laws on the person. I will respond in, to every action with an equal and opposite reaction. Or sometimes I'll perceive it to be equal and opposite, but what I really do is I ramp it up a little bit. And then they ramp it up a little bit. We are to be patient. When we're impatient in the sense that he's talking about here, what, what we're really doing, we're saying that, that, 
when we're impatient with people who treat us poorly, what we're really saying is that God is not doing a good job. We're really saying that, that, that God is not dealing with that person, so I need to take it into my own hands. And I need to exact vengeance or justice on that person. But instead we are to, to, to say, as the Lord tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We leave it in the Lord's hands. I wonder how patient is Jesus with you? What about forbearance? The, the, the fourth and, and final one of these virtues that he lists here in verse 2. Forbearance is long-suffering. It means bearing with one another's weaknesses. It's not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of the faults that we find in them. Faults which maybe offend us or displease us. In one of my classes, Stuart Scott described, described forbearance as putting up with one another's weirdness. And it's certainly that, it is certainly part of that, but it's, it's more than just putting up with one another because it's, it's forbearance in love. Bearing with one another in love. It's, it's not just putting up with them, it's, it's saying, I love that person. I love that person and I, can, and I can see those faults in that person. I can see even, yes, the weirdness in that person, their, their, their quirks and their, their weaknesses, but... but because I love them, I don't, I'm not offended by that. I want to pray for them. And I want to seek opportunities that maybe it, if I have the right attitude towards that person, maybe the Lord just might use me to help that person, to encourage them and to, to help them to see. That these are the, the, this is part of why we need church. Because we, we walk together through life. And yes, we offend each other. We hurt each other's feelings through, through being selfish or, 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 or just being, just not even thinking. You know, it's actually pretty easy to, to, to walk with somebody and to, well, to spend time with somebody for, for a couple of hours on a Sunday and to get along with them. But if you are interested in fellowship, in the, in the, the kind of fellowship that that Christ created the church for, it gets a lot more difficult, doesn't it? When you, when you walk in, in more close proximity and, and you really get to know somebody and they, they really start to get on your nerves. Maybe it's me getting on your nerves. But it's forbearance in love. Paul had prayed in, in chapter 3 that the Ephesian Christians would be rooted and grounded in love. And, and now he's exhorting them to walk in that love. You can see here at the beginning of verse 3 where Paul tells us why. He, he tells us our motivation for this, that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or maintain the, the Spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Unity is a gift from God. Remember from Ephesians 2 that, that God has broken down the wall of hostility. And so he has united the people of God in himself. We can't create unity. Only God can create unity. He created that unity between us and him and between us and our brothers and sisters through the cross of Christ. 
And so out of that unity that we have with God in Christ, we now have a unity with our brothers and sisters. Ephesians 2.15 says, He made one new man in place of the two, so making peace. You see there in verse 3 that it's a unity of the Spirit. This is, it's, it's hard to tell because it's the same word, whether this should be a small s or a capital S. It's the same word as he's talking about, about the, the, the Christians have a, a, a spirit of unity among themselves, or is he talking about the Holy Spirit? I, I believe from the, the context here he's talking about the Holy Spirit, that this is a work of the Holy Spirit, that our unity is made effective by the Spirit of God in the hearts of believers. And there at the end of verse 3, our unity is in the bond of peace, like Colossians 3.15. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In Canadian law, a peace bond is, a, is an order by the criminal court requiring a person to keep the peace and to be on good behavior for a, a certain period of time. Well, this is a peace bond from God. And not just for a, for a short duration. This is a, 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 excuse me, a peace bond from God for all eternity. Our unity is a gift from God. But it's our job to maintain it. We are to be eager to maintain it. So how do you maintain unity? The things we just talked about, by humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. It, it means don't gossip or complain about others. Instead, speak well of them. It, it means don't be selfish, but instead serve others. It means don't get frustrated by others. Instead, pray for them. It means don't retaliate when somebody hurts you. Instead, love them and turn the other cheek. It means don't put yourself last, first rather, instead, view yourself as last. Do you see the pattern there? This is the same pattern that he's going to be talking about here for, for a couple of chapters. This is putting off sinful behavior and putting on obedient, righteous behavior. Put off Put on. Don't just stop doing sinful behavior. Start doing righteous behavior. Well, finally, in verses 4 to 6, we, we see the source of our unity. And again, this is really uh, largely an indicative. This is, this is the, the basis. These are the, the facts. This is the truth that makes all of that possible. The source of our unity. Many commentators see these verses as a section of a, a Christian creed or a hymn. But what I want us to notice here is that, again, that word one, seven times in, in these three verses. It's like a beacon that, that's made to get our attention. Paul here is listing seven <coughs> sources of our unity. We are one because of these ones. In verse four, the focus is on the Spirit. In verse 5, the focus is on the Son. And then verse 6, focuses on the Father. But God is one. He is the triune God. P.T. O'Brien says that the sevenfold list is basically threefold, since three of these unities allude to the three persons of the Trinity, while the remaining four refer to believers' relationship to the Father, Son, 
and the Spirit. Or in the order here, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. So do you see that? Where, where verse 4 is talking about the Spirit, verse 5, the Son, and verse 6, the Father. That he's showing that the Trinity is one, and then we walk in that because of the unity of the Trinity, and because we are unified with the Trinity through the work of the Trinity, this is the source for our unity. Paul is, of course, aware of the racial diversity that was there in the church in Ephesus. And the, 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 contra, the, the division between Jew and Gentile was a, a big part of why he wrote this letter. And so he's focused again and again and again on unity. He's exhorting the church to unity. It's a unity that comes as a gift from God. Now, I don't know what your family traditions are at Christmas time, whether, whether you have already opened some presents or whether you haven't uh, opened any, or even if you exchange presents at, at Christmas time. I don't know what, what your family traditions are. But when somebody gives you a gift, when somebody you really care for gives you a gift, you value that gift, don't you, because of the giver of that gift. Many years ago, I, I made a, a box for a, a girlfriend for Christmas, and it wasn't Jane, this might be the first time Jane is hearing this story, it's a long, long time ago. I, I made a, a little box for the, this girl that asked for a box, and so, so I made this little box ahead of her friend, and, and painted and put some scripture on it, and, and, and gave it to her. But her brother had given her another box that he had bought at the store. And so she put the box that, that he had made up on a place of honor on the, on the bookshelf, and my box was in, sitting in a, in a, the, on the floor in a corner. I, I knew pretty much from that time the direction that our relationship was headed. That, that, that I was, was definitely not the, the, a priority in her life, and that, that became evident shortly thereafter. But if you value the giver, you will value the gift. And so if we value the unity that we have received in Christ, the work of the Spirit, then we will work to maintain that unity because of the giver. So in verse 4, it's, he talks about one body and one spirit and one hope. We're one body. Elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk about us as, as being members of one another. Again, this is indicative. This is the reality. We as, as members of the local church are, are a, a manifestation of the heavenly unity. We're a reflection of, of that unity. Now there's differences in, in it, there can be times when, when you need to divide from someone because of, of differences in essential doctrine. But even when that takes place, we need to be charitable, don't we, with, with those who believe differently. But most often those differences, are, those divisions don't become, or don't result in, in, because of, of important things like doctrine. Really, so often division happens because of superficial things, from selfish individualism or, or sin. We need to fight to break down the, the barriers that we erect. 
The most important barriers have been broken down in Christ. That wall of hostility that separated us from God has been broken down by the cross of Christ. That's enabled us to be unified. Unified with God and then also unified with our brothers and sisters. We've been reconciled in one body. Ephesians 2.16, we have access. We have access in one spirit to the Father. 2.18. Here, the reference to one spirit is obviously the, the Holy Spirit. Here in 2.18 it says, For through him we have access, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And we have one hope. One hope just as, as we spoke about, as Paul spoke about walking in a manner worthy of your call. Now, now he's talking about the hope that belongs to your call. What is your hope? What are you hoping in? What is the greatest hope of your life? Is your greatest hope that you will go to be with the Lord for all eternity? That's my hope. And if that's your hope, we're walking on the same road to the same destination. One hope. Verse 5, the focus is, is on the Son. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, this is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the monogenes. He is the only one of his kind. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He's the only way to the Father. 1 Corinthians 8.6, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we, we exist. So it's one Son, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one faith. Is the same attitude of trust that binds us all in the Lord. This is the same means of access that we have to Him and the same means of life that we have in Him. Our faith is in Christ. Our common faith is in Christ. Our faith is there and our trust is in Him and Him alone. We believe that He is who He says He is. We believe that He is God the Son. This faith is... The faith that, that believes who Jesus says He is and the faith that, that believes that He lived a sinless life, that He died a sinner's death, that He was raised on the third day. This is the faith that, that, that He did it for you. That your only hope is, is that your sin was credited to His account and that His righteousness was credited to your account. This is the one faith delivered for all. There's one baptism. One baptism. This is not the baptism in the Spirit that's in view because, the, again, the focus in verse 5 is on the Son. This is Christian baptism. This is the baptism of those who repent, who have repented and believed the gospel. This is believer's baptism. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13, for, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And in Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you uh, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so our baptism is a reflection of our union with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. There's one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, all focusing on Jesus. And then finally in verse 6, the focus is on God the Father. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in, and in all. We already looked at the second half of 1 Corinthians 8.6. Now let's look at the first half. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. God the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God the Father is our Father. He is our Father. And as the Father, He is over all of His people. And He is through all of His people. And He is in all His people. We are one in Him. We have been made one in Him. Back in, in 1 chapter 4, Sorry, chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about, verse 5, says that we have been adopted as sons and daughters. God the Father is the, the source. He predestined us for adoption. He is the one who chose us in the Son, that we would be His spiritual family. And so we've been made one because we have one Father. So Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, and He is the source of our unity. We are one in Him. And so we walk in our oneness because of God's work for us and in us, in and through the gospel. I wonder this morning, are you eager to maintain that unity that has been given to us in Christ? Do you pray for the unity of the church? Are you seeking to walk in that unity? Are you seeking by, entirely by God's grace but to live out these, these, those four virtues that he, was, that he was talking about? Humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Are you asking the Lord to, to make you reflect those things? And when you do, you will be a promoter of unity in the church. You will be one of those people that God uses to maintain the unity of the church. No person, no single person can uphold the unity on their own. This is not the job of pastors. It's not the job of, of elders and deacons. This is the job for all of the Christians and, and for all of the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What happens when you fail to walk in those things? What happens when, it happens when you do and, and say things that, that don't promote unity, but instead, instead disrupt unity? You repent, don't you? You ask the Lord to forgive you and to help you to again to walk in those things. And the Lord picks you up, dusts you off, and sets you back on course, continuing to walk by His grace in a manner that is worthy of your calling. All for one. One for all. United we stand, divided we fall. I wonder, is that your motto this morning? Let's pray together.
our Lord and our God. We thank you for the unity that we have. Lord, that we have received in Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you have torn down the wall, the walls of hostility in Christ. Lord, you have torn down the walls that divided us from you. And Lord, in so doing, you have also torn down the walls that divide us from each other. Lord, would you make us a people that are characterized by humility and gentleness and meekness and forbearance. Lord, would you make us a people that are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We ask this for your glory, that you might be revealed in us, in this church. We ask this in the strong and majestic name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior.
Merry Christmas. <laughs> 